Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Thursday, April 30th. I'm Lorraine Cáceres. Here are today's headlines. The president's guidelines to slow the spread of the coronavirus are expiring today. This as the nationwide death toll is topping 60,000. Plus, new unemployment numbers are in. Nearly 4 million Americans filing for benefits last week, bringing the total number of unemployed to a staggering 30 million since the outbreak began. And new hope in the fight against coronavirus, an antiviral drug appearing to speed the recovery of COVID-19 patients. This and much more today on You News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. More than half of the United States will be partially reopened by the end of this week, even as the death toll passes 60,000 Americans. The president defying, announcing he will not extend federal social distancing guidelines. Here's the very latest. Social distancing guidelines end today, and President Trump is eager to get the U.S. back to business. They're opening up where they'll open a certain amount here, restaurants at 25 percent, then going to 50 percent, then ultimately... We want to be back to where, the, where we're 100 percent. Malls across the country getting ready to welcome shoppers, some taking social distancing precautions like markers on the ground to help shoppers keep an appropriate distance, sanitizing locations spread out, plexiglass barriers set up at food counters, and digital signs reminding shoppers to stay safe. Alabama allowing all retail stores to open at 50% occupancy. Beaches reopening too, but gatherings limited to 10 people. In hard-hit New Jersey, the governor allowing the state's parks and golf courses to reopen this weekend at 50% capacity. Our reopening comes with a strong recommendation that everyone wear a face covering when social distancing. But California's governor, Gavin Newsom, announcing he's closing all public beaches after crowds flocked to the coast last weekend. The governor of Nevada says parts of his states, like the famed Las Vegas Strip, aren't ready to welcome visitors. The opening of the casinos and the gaming enterprises will probably come in the third or fourth phase of what we're going to end up doing here because we're just not quite ready yet to handle that type of a volume. Meanwhile, some workers are worried. Veronica Fields, our hairstylist in West Virginia, thinks it's too soon to go back to work because the guidelines are so unclear. I think that it's kind of crazy to go from completely shut down, but next Monday I'm going to be expected to figure out how to do full salon services on masked clients while I'm masked. But even if people don't feel safe to go back to work, some will have no choice. States like Iowa and Texas telling workers if they refuse to take their jobs back, they'll lose their unemployment benefits. In Florida, the governor says most counties will be allowed to reopen certain businesses on Monday, but only at 25 percent capacity. South Florida, where most cases are reported, is excluded. Health officials continue to stress that expanding testing is essential to slowing the spread of COVID-19. The city of Los Angeles is trying to get on top of that by providing free coronavirus testing for all residents, even those who aren't showing symptoms. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti says there are 34 testing sites across the city and county of Los Angeles, and they can test up to 18,000 people per day. Free testing is only available to the city's residents at this time. And amid all the devastating news across the country, some good news. Researchers 
may have a real weapon now in the battle against COVID-19. It's an antiviral drug showing some promising early results. Andrea Linares has the latest on the medical details. Doctors have found a medicine that seems to work to treat coronavirus. It's called remdesivir. The data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut significant positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery. Remdesivir was a drug developed for Ebola, but it didn't work very well for that virus. In preliminary results of this new study sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, more than 1,000 patients were randomly assigned to take either remdesivir or a placebo. It took the placebo patients 15 days to recover. It took the remdesivir patients 11 days to recover, a 31% improvement. It is currently given to patients through an IV, but an inhaled and oral version of the medication is in the works. Although a 31% improvement doesn't seem like a knockout 100%. It is a very important proof of concept because what it is proven is that a drug can block this virus. The experimental drug from Gilead Sciences isn't licensed or approved anywhere yet. On January 21st, 2020, it was reported that China's Wuhan Institute of Virology of the Chinese Academy of Sciences filed a patent for commercial use of remdesivir. That's the same institute which was studying bat-borne coronaviruses like the one that causes COVID-19. But Chinese trials have shown mixed results when using the drug. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., the FDA will reportedly authorize emergency use for remdesivir. The CEO of Gilead Sciences says there's enough remdesivir to treat 140,000 patients. Weeks ago, 55-year-old Chris Kane was in the hospital, needing oxygen, and with a high fever when doctors gave him this medication. I was feeling pretty bad, so I said, sure, let's give it a shot. I woke up in the morning and I could breathe and it still hurt, but, you know, it, it had dropped off quite a bit. And in Washington, D.C., a new effort is underway. It's reportedly called Operation Warp Speed. The program's mission is to find a vaccine that could be widely distributed by the beginning of next year. But some health officials are trying to talk the president down, warning him that it would be more harmful to set a short deadline that might result in a faulty vaccine than to wait for one that is proved safe and effective. Doctors say they need to continue studying remdesivir. Based on previous trials in Ebola patients, data showed no serious side effects, which is another advantage of this drug. Researchers believe we are seeing a slight glimmer of hope. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares. Lorraine, now back to you. Thank you, Andrea. And in other medical news, a professor at Texas A&M University believes a century-old vaccine for tuberculosis could help treat the coronavirus. That vaccine, called BCG, is frequently used in developing countries where researchers have noticed lower morbidity and mortality rates from COVID-19. Efforts are underway to recruit 1,800 volunteers to take part in Texas A&M's nationwide tests of BCG's application for coronavirus. The school is the first U.S. institution in the clinical trial to get clearance to test on humans. That trial is set to start this week. BCG isn't meant to cure COVID-19, the illness caused by the novel coronavirus, but instead to bridge the gap until a vaccine is developed. 
And the coronavirus crisis continues to batter economies around the world. The federal government here in the U.S. releasing new unemployment numbers today. More than 3.8 million people filed jobless claims last week, an unemployment shock not seen since the 1930s. Janet Rodriguez has the details from Washington, D.C. Janet? That's right, Lorena. Now that means that over 30 million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits in the past five weeks. And the economic advisor for the White House, Kevin Hassett, saying today that he believes that the unemployment rate would hit 19 percent once this is all said and done. But some glimmer of hopes coming from uh, California, from the California Policy Institute, saying today that in a new study, they believe that 90 percent of these people that are on unemployment benefits will be able to go back to their uh, respective jobs, will be able to go back into the economy once the states reopen. And the president saying today that he believes that this number, this 19 percent unemployment figure will be short lived because he does think that the economy will rebound uh, very strongly once uh, once the economy reopens and once all the states reopen. And uh, the president, too, wanting to get back to business and wanting to get back outside of the White House, he revealed that he will be traveling to Arizona next week not to have a uh, rally. He said that those hopefully are coming very soon, but he will be going to an industrial visit, as he called it. And uh, he announcing that he's very eager to leave the White House. He says that he's done with his quarantine and he will be able to travel next week to Arizona. This is to when he, uh, the economy, going back to economic news, has shrunk 4.8%. This is news coming out yesterday from the uh, Commerce Department, one of the greatest shrink since the Depression of 2008. And the president once again say from the Oval Office today that he believes that the economy will rebound and will be better than ever, as he likes to say, once the pandemic is behind us. Back to you. Janet, and how are the financial markets reacting to all this devastating financial news? Well, the financial markets got a little bit of a bump yesterday. They reacted very good to the news that you had earlier that Andrea was talking about on the medicine Remdesivir. They were very uh, hopeful that this will be able to put the pandemic behind us. It would not be as grave. So the market's getting a little bit of a bump. We'll see how they react uh, by the end of closing today with the new unemployment numbers. Back to you. Thank you, Janet Rodriguez in Washington, D.C. for that report. Also, some big news out of Washington. U.S. intelligence agencies have concluded that the novel coronavirus was not man-made or genetically modified, but say they are still examining whether the origins of the pandemic trace to contact with infected animals or an accident at a Chinese lab. The statement from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the clearinghouse for the web of U.S. spy agencies, comes as President Donald Trump and his allies have touted that as of yet unproven their theory that an infectious disease lab in Wuhan, the epicenter of the Chinese outbreak, was the source of the global pandemic. And earlier this week, President Trump signed an executive order to get ahead of possible meat shortage caused by the coronavirus outbreak, a reaction in large part due to confirmed cases registered at multiple meatpacking facilities around the country. Juan Carlos Gonzalez has more on the looming shortage and how people are responding. The alert came a few days ago from meat distributors. I got, I got two calls from two different distributors. Uh, one of them said, both of them said that the prices were going to go up incredibly. 
and that there might be shortages as well. Um, and we saw that come Monday. This is because some meat processing plants around the country are closing down after employees tested positive for coronavirus. When people heard the news, some meat markets like this one in Linwood, California, experienced a rush from consumers to buy meat products. We have seen definitely uh, people buying more product, for sure. Um, it seems like they're preparing for the worst. Viviana Lopez says that on this trip to the market, she is buying more meat products than usual. Pues para estar preparada, sí. To be prepared, probably twice, just to make sure we have enough. But President Donald Trump signed an executive order to keep these plants open under the Defense Product Act. I just got off the phone with the biggest in the world. I mean, the biggest distributors there are and the big companies that you've been reading about. They are so thrilled. They're so happy. Uh, they're all gung-ho and we solved their problems. We unblocked some of the bottlenecks and I'm sure you've seen it. You've, I'm sure you've heard. Uh, I, I spoke to him about two hours ago, signed something very important last night in terms of Defense Production Act. According to this businessman, the president's actions will definitely help prevent shortages. Well, I think it's extremely important, even though I'm not a fan of his, but I think it's very important that, that we keep um, the meatpacking plants open, you know, of course, using, using the, the proper equipment, um, we have to keep them open because uh, it's an essential, it's something people need. People need meat in their diets and, and uh, we, ha we have to keep it going. We have to keep it going. The order comes as some meat plants are being sued, with workers accusing them of not doing enough to protect them from COVID-19 and in some cases encourage them to show up even if they are sick. In another case, relatives and activists are accusing quality sausage in Dallas, Texas of being responsible for the death of Hugo Dominguez, who contracted COVID-19. It's not fair their dad left us without our love, without my kid's father, says his fiancée. The company didn't take precautions to prevent the spread of coronavirus. Their only concern was their profits, says this activist. At least one more employee died from COVID-19 in this plant. The company said that they have complied with all the sanitary precautions, but announced that they're temporarily closing to make sure they provide a safe environment for their employees. According to the owner of this store, prices have increased already. Meat about 20%, pork more than 50%. He says he's trying not to pass the new prices onto his customers because he understands that many people lost their jobs and they have no money. In Los Angeles, Juan Carlos Gonzalez, U News. Thank you, Juan Carlos Gonzalez, for that reporting. And as the food industry continues to struggle here in the U.S., some troubling news. A new report found that so far 20 employees at meatpacking plants have died and over 4,000 are sick with the virus. That's according to an analysis by Leah Douglas. She's a reporter at Food and Environment Reporting Network. Leah, that number, 20 dead and over 4,000 sick with the virus, what does that tell you? Well, actually, I updated that figure today, and we're looking at now over 5,000 workers who have confirmed contracted COVID-19 and 25 who have died. 
And that's a result of experiencing uh, very difficult workplace conditions, including close proximity to other workers, a lack of protective equipment, uh, and a workplace that has always been precarious and at times dangerous. Let's talk about the executive order. It does not mandate meat processing plants to stay open, but it actually gives the federal government the power to open or shut them down, taking away the power from local and state officials. What does that say about the industry? Absolutely. So the executive order does remove the authority from local officials, uh, which has been used in some cases to shut down plants in the, in the interest of public health. And I think what we're seeing there is a request from the meat industry to President Trump to say, uh, you know, we need federal intervention to keep our plants operating and to keep uh, food moving through the system. And we're seeing a trade-off there, absolutely, uh, between public health and the interests of the meat industry. The executive order also shields meat plant owners from employee lawsuits if they get sick because of being forced to work. What are conditions like inside these plants for employees, many of whom actually are Latino immigrants? So conditions in meatpacking plants were already difficult uh, before COVID-19. So we we already were hearing reports from workers that they had um, inconsistent access to bathrooms. They were not receiving uh, paid sick time off. Um, they were struggling with uh, low pay, and those were that was the status quo already in meatpacking plants. Uh, workers work very closely together at a breakneck pace, and the plants are cold. Uh, moist, windy. Um, they basically are a perfect incubator for uh, the spread of COVID-19. So on top of those conditions that already existed, now workers in some plants are saying they don't have access to adequate protective equipment, to masks, to face shields, gloves, uh, and they're forced to work under increasingly dangerous conditions. And Leah, not only are thousands of people getting sick with the virus, but as many as 700,000 pigs could be euthanized per week because there's nowhere to process them. Could this have been prevented and how? Absolutely. The ripple effect for farmers will be significant uh, as these plants stay closed and there's a backlog of animals. Uh, there, you know, one of the things I've seen in tracking the, the, the closures of plants across the country is often the meat companies have waited uh, until an outbreak is already underway to either uh, temporarily close a facility for cleaning or test all the workers at a plant or take other precautions. So uh, there's definitely an opportunity for companies to act sooner in the interest of protecting their employees and, and keeping the food supply chain running. Definitely a very difficult situation. Thank you, Leah Douglas, staff writer at Food and Environment Reporting Network. Thank you so much. The race for the White House continues even in a pandemic. The latest Joe Biden's presidential campaign has selected a group of co-chairs for Biden's vice presidential selection committee. They are former U.S. Senator Chris Dodd, Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, and former White House and Senate counsel to VP Biden, Cynthia Hogan. The four co-chairs will lead the process of searching for potential running mates for Biden and conduct relevant conversations across the party. Biden has said he will pick a woman as his running mate.
Meanwhile, continued questions about sexual assault allegations made by a woman against Joe Biden. An ex-neighbor says that Tara Reid told her about the alleged assault back in the mid-1990s. The accounts were purportedly recounted to the neighbor within a few years of the alleged incident. Marks the first details and on-the-record corroboration of Reid's allegation against Biden. His campaign has denied Reid's allegation that Biden sexually assaulted her in 1993 when she was an aide in his Senate office. As for comment about the neighbor's account, the Biden campaign referred to a statement previously released by one of their officials saying that the allegations are false. Comments from President Trump earlier this week have once again put immigrant communities and advocates on high alert after the president controversially suggested federal funding to states to fight the coronavirus could be put on hold if states do, don't roll back their sanctuary city policies. Jaime Garcia has more. I love to see happen. A lot Leading stating that despite the coronavirus crisis, he will not stop the battle against the sanctuary cities. President Donald Trump has indicated that relief funding for states could depend on ending sanctuary cities. On certain things also, including sanctuary city adjustments, because we have so many people in sanctuary cities, which I don't even think are popular, even by radical left folks. The president's declaration provoking immediate reactions. This is what we legally call quid pro quo. One thing in exchange for another. President Trump is charging against the state and local governments that are only focusing in taking care of their communities. It is estimated that there are more than 200 local and state jurisdictions with laws that forbid local and state police from collaborating in the enforcement of immigration laws with ICE agents contrary to President Trump wishes. By withholding much needed federal dollars, dollars that are needed because of the coronavirus, because of the economic uncertainty, because of the high employment, it is doubtful. For the author of the California Sanctuary Law, the president's threats have no legal standing. It's highly doubtful that a federal judge, because of the 10th Amendment of the Constitution, will allow the White House to punish both states as well as cities, especially the largest state in the union. This new controversy happened while it's expected a decision by the Supreme Court to cut some federal funding to sanctuary states. In Los Angeles, Jaime Garcia, U News. Agricultural companies in California are working to prevent a larger outbreak among migrant farm workers a grower called Fresh Harvest brought in the Monterey County Health Department to educate their farm workers. According to last week's county health statistics, one quarter of all coronavirus cases came from workers in the agricultural industry. Many Fresh Harvest employees are Mexican citizens on H-2A visas. Antivirus education is a key part of the company's evolving safety plan. California currently has more than 48,000 confirmed cases, along with nearly 2,000 deaths due to COVID-19. Meanwhile, in Texas, a food bank in Houston says the need for food handouts is reaching historic levels in the city. Uh, a long line of cars stretched across the parking lot during a food distribution event on Wednesday. Volunteers did their best to keep up. The food bank says more Houstonians are struggling to put food on their tables because of business closures called, uh, caused by the coronavirus. During the summer, the food bank also plans to deliver food to the homes of families who have trouble feeding their kids. 
Around the world, life has changed dramatically due to the ongoing outbreak, but sadly, so has the way most now experience death. Pedro Rojas takes a look at how the funeral industry in South Texas is trying to adapt to this new reality. Funerals in these times of COVID-19 have changed. Only 10 people are allowed to attend services. Live streaming is used as our drive throughs where people in cars can briefly participate through windows or in spaces designated by funeral homes. These limitations left these sisters with sad memories after recently losing their mom in South Texas. This is going to be a memory that we will never remove from our minds. We were united and closer to her, and knowing that she couldn't see us together, how she wanted would be difficult, Elena de Leon says. It was really hard. She had 10 children, lots of grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and it was impossible to be together, Maria Blanco says. In Los Fresnos, Texas, a local funeral home now has a window for drive-through funerals. According to the owners of this funeral home, this idea was developed in just a matter of weeks, and the idea of putting it together was done in just a few days. This is on wheels, so we can turn it sideways, and while we're having the service, the people will be in here, the 10 people will be in here, given the service, we'll put the kneeler here, and people can be outside and view their loved one from the outside. In El Paso, Texas, Gabriela Peralta gave former farewell to a loved one outside a funeral home at an event without an audience. She spoke of the impression the experience left on her. This is something that goes against our own instincts, how a human being cannot have closure, Gabriela says. For psychologist Jose Goa, these funerals during the COVID-19 pandemic could have emotional consequences. This is just one more blow to that surviving person. Besides the blow of the loss, uh, now is the blow of not being able to grieve the person in a normal grieving way. Families that lost members at hospitals for any sickness have a deeper trauma these days because visitors aren't allowed there either. In Los Fresnos, Texas, Pedro Rojas, U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, U News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Want me to do? That was Brazil's president Jair Bolsonaro when asked about the country's coronavirus death toll. His comments sparking anger among many people. Brazil's death toll topped 5,000 this week, and there are more than 73,000 confirmed cases. Most health experts have supported social distancing orders by Brazilian governors, but Bolsonaro called the measures poison, fearing the economic consequences could kill more than the virus. And in Mexico, nurses and doctors are under the double threat of rising stress and the risk of infection as they battle the coronavirus. Mexico has among the lowest number of medical personnel relative 
to population in Latin America. And at least five of Mexico City's largest private hospitals have already filled up with COVID-19 patients. So far, Mexico has registered more than 17,000 confirmed cases and nearly 1,800 deaths. But the, governor sa- the government says the real number of infected people is significantly higher. A group of Honduran cruise ship members is thankful to be back after surviving what they call forced isolation at sea off the coast of Florida. They also say they were punished for speaking with Univision after their struggles. Yanni Aponte has the latest on the long-awaited homecoming. That was the homecoming for 27 Honduran cruise ship workers who spent 42 days in isolation. They say they were held against their will on a cruise ship off Florida, just the latest group of workers impacted by the coronavirus. They were crew members on the Grand Paradise cruise, though they said conditions soon grew abusive. Some felt obligated to work with no pay, and others had their hours cut. Humberto Gomez worked as an electrician. Honestly, I never thought I would go through such a horrible experience. This was a special kind of hell we were trapped in, each day just trying to get out. Alan Oval worked as a mechanic. He says he developed depression and had a difficult time with the entire situation. I felt like I was being held against my will. Abigail Salgado worked at a bar on board. Humberto and Alan say their internet service and phone line were taken away for speaking out to Univision, leaving Abigail as their only contact with the outside world. I spent so many days unable to sleep. I got desperate. They all imagined the worst, thinking a day like today would never come. We thought maybe one day we would be able to make it home. But what if it was just my ashes that came home? Sometimes I would have thoughts like those. I would think about my family and I would watch the news. Sometimes I would see stories about friends or others from my country who had died, their ashes sent home to their families in little boxes. The only thing that gave them the courage to go on? Thinking of their families. I left my dad, my mom, and my brothers, and I keep on going for them. Today, I feel free. I want to scream, to tell you the truth, to tell my wife and kids that I love them. Thanks to the complaints made by these workers, next week, 93 more crew members from other ships will get to go home to Honduras. Reported by Vilma Tarrazona, this is Gianni Aponte for U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.